Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing The Young Pope and its sequel series, The New Pope, some of our favourite TV of the past decade. Created by Italian filmmaker Paolo Sorrentino, The Young Pope is a satirical drama starring Jude Law in the title role, an American cardinal who is unexpectedly chosen to become the Pope. John Malkovich stars as his replacement in season two. And trust us, if you have not seen it before, nothing can prepare you for how weird and brilliant this show is. We love the Pope shows. Great shows. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So The Young Pope came out, or aired in the US anyway, in the, this time of year in 2017. But it was available in Europe slightly before that. And we watched it all together when I was staying with you over Christmas in 2016. And we're just like, this is the best thing we've ever seen. Like we immediately were obsessed. I have watched the whole thing twice. If I were to make a list of like my top 20 narrative works of art in all mediums, (laughs) I don't, I mean, that's an absurd thing. I have never made such a list, but this would be on the list. The first season, the second season is it's very different and kind of its own thing, which we will get into, but the young Pope, the first season, it's just, it is a transcendent art object. And kind of famously among young Pope aficionados, among the papists, if you will, <laughs> the show both is and isn't what you expect, because I think there's been quite a lot of, um, especially when it was airing like in 2017, there was quite a lot of viral clips and gifts and that sort of thing. And also the promotions for the show, because it can be advertised in a very enticing way, particularly because it stars Jude Law and everyone knows Jude Law and has certain expectations. And also people have certain expectations for, you know, an HBO miniseries, especially one with a title like The Young Pope. And, you know, there's a clip which is just a three minute montage of Jude Law getting dressed in his papal vestments to a soundtrack of LMFAO, I'm sexy and I know it. And like people were like, is this the trailer? Is this a fan video? No, that is a direct scene from the show. And I think (laughs) among a lot of people who have not seen it, some of whom will hopefully be listening because we want to introduce you to The Young Pope. I think the assumption is this is an HBO comedy-ish drama along the lines of when there was that show that was about the Borgias, you know, that sort of thing. You're like, oh, this is going to be like a sexy Pope drama about like a sexy guy. And also there's the kind of the joke that Jude Law is like 45, so he's only young by Pope standards. (laughs) And when you actually watch the show, even the first episode is kind of a fake out because initially you are like, oh yeah, this is going to be a show about like a sexy young Pope who is really forward thinking and revolutionizes the church. And very rapidly, the show makes it clear that that is absolutely not what this is about at all. Um, First of all, Jude Law's Pope, who is an American called Lenny Ballardo, who is an orphan who was taken in by the church. He is very conservative Um, He's a megalomaniac. And also because of the time when this came out, like it came out in 2016, like Morgan said, um, and it felt very Trumpian, not in the sense that Lenny Bellardo is like stupid, but he is a conservative figure who's like a massive egomaniac and very quickly is sort of taking charge unexpectedly of this infrastructure and leadership, which he starts fucking with and like immediately acting like a huge asshole and throwing his weight around. So it's very much not what you're expecting, but the show is also very funny and stylish and largely interested in kind of this unique intersection between faith and ritual that you obviously get 
in the Vatican, but also lots of Vatican internal politics. So most of the main characters are cardinals who are essentially politicians in this context, like people who are living in the Vatican and run the Vatican and other people who work in the Vatican. So there are a couple of female characters in the main cast. Um, There's a woman who's like the head of PR and marketing at the Holy See. And there's a woman who is married to a member of the Swiss Guard, those guys who wear absurd historical costumes and guard Vatican City. And then most of the other characters are members of the priesthood. And it kind of tackles quite hard-hitting topics within the Vatican. So, you know, they really do go into the child abuse scandals and they go into the kind of economics of the church and all of the petty infighting among these upper level figures who are in charge of the Vatican and how the Pope is chosen. And then it throws Jude Law into the middle of all of this as this sort of figure of chaos while also being just very witty and stylish and often absurd. And it's just delightful to watch. One of the things he does is he'll have various powerful figures either within the church or like heads of state, including the Italian prime minister, will come and have meetings with him. And he just verbally eviscerates them in a way that when you're watching it, you're like, I know you're an asshole, but this is so satisfying. Like, because he is so charismatic, he's so smart, and Jude Law is just... He's perfect casting. Oh, oh my God. That the show is incredibly sympathetic to him like the the show wants you to be invested in this character but it's not presenting him as like a good no. person when he's behaving like that which is kind of how it views the church in general it's really really smart on catholicism i think in that especially with the second season which we'll kind of discuss in the second part of this episode it is very clear that sorrentino who is catholic or certainly grew up catholic loves the church. Like, this is not something that was made by non-Catholics or by someone who, at least to my knowledge, has, like, renounced the church and is mad about it or whatever. But he clearly has a very strong grasp on the flaws of the church, both in terms of just the general structure and the power hierarchy and also the specific things that the church has done that are bad, most importantly, the child abuse situation. So... He is able to both understand the appeals of the church and religion more broadly, but also say, like, well, this is really fucked up. And that is done in a global way, but also all kind of compresses down into this one character in a way that is really smart. But the character doesn't feel like what I just said. Like, he feels just like a person and has he was he's an orphan his parents abandoned him at this orphanage when he was seven or something and diane keaton plays the nun who basically raised him and he is just this i mean he's obsessed with finding his parents he's got this huge complex over that he's just like a child basically who has now somehow become uh, the pope and so it's very very freudian while also being about religion in this sort of mishmash that is totally and there's just like extremely explicit kind of crossover between you know the distant unobtainable parents and god obviously i've read like a couple of interviews with sorrentino but i've not really read any that kind of go into his background but he was also orphaned as a teenager and i'm sure that like very directly plays into all of this but you do kind of get in season one there's a lot of kind of ambiguity with the concept of God in the show because obviously it's largely 
about kind of petty and also very serious disputes within the Vatican. But there's also this constant question of like, does the young Pope, Lenny Bellardo, actually kind of maybe have some miraculous powers, which is something that I find very appealing, like as a concept. And it was just really interesting to watch a show where people are having these really lengthy conversations, both about their own faith and about God, and also about like really kind of gross and unpleasant like basically kind of mob behavior all this manipulation and blackmail and kind of all the machinations going on behind the scenes like one of the key characters in both seasons is cardinal voyello who is the secretary of state for the vatican played by the italian actor silvio orlando he's basically the deep state of the vatican like he is there (laughs) before jude law is pope he is there after and he is the one who runs everything and as soon as Lenny Bellardo shows up, it really throws a spanner in the works of what uh, Cardinal Viello kind of sees as this very smoothly running machine where he controls everyone in the Vatican because he knows where all the bodies are buried. He can manipulate everyone. He can blackmail everyone. But he also basically wants the church to succeed. And he is like quite pious, even though he is doing stuff that's very evil. And you kind of see how most of the like main characters have some kind of personal failing or because they're all human you know it's like people are having affairs or they have addictions and that sort of thing which of course people do and then Voyello's like only real failing is that he's like obsessed with a football team so he's kind of (laughs) so he's like even though as a person he's like sometimes repulsive and sometimes very funny and annoying he is actually does almost have the moral high ground even though he doesn't because his actual vice is that he's like constantly controlling everyone because he's a monster but then of course Lenny Bellardo is much more of a monster because he's a sadist who just wants to fuck everyone up well and Voyello is a reformer like he wants the church to Yes. Become more progressive. He generally does, but in kind of like in a very slow and pragmatic way. So he's sort of like, we need to sort things out, but like without making waves. Doesn't want to blow the thing up. But he is on that side and Lenny is not. But one of the things I find interesting about the way they handle the politics is it's not that Lenny is like putting on the conservatism and like secretly believes something else. That's definitely not the case. And when he talks about abortion, he clearly feels strongly about it because he is obsessed with children because he's an orphan. But you don't get the sense that he is a extreme homophobe, even though he's talking about how they have to root the homosexuals out of the out of the priesthood. There's this sort of sense of him playing a role of this very conservative pope, right? There's a sense of, it's again, it's not that he doesn't believe it, but it's also kind of something he's put on, which plays also into, like he has his confessor who he also gets to like, give him all the gossip of the priests who have confessed to him, which is against the rules. And he says to him multiple times, like, I don't believe in God. And this guy's head is like exploding because <laughs> it's not the Pope's not supposed to say that. And so the sort of, swinging back and forth between like extreme belief and behavior and like maybe none of this means anything is part of what makes the character so interesting and also is like how religion but also life in general works and the fact that all of these ideas are coming out of the physicality of jude law because this show is like obsessed with how attractive jude law is like we have discussed jude law in some previous podcasts for sure in particular in our Talented Mr. Ripley podcast a couple of months ago. Um, But 
you know, Mr. Law has like a few really iconic roles, but he also like, he does like quite a lot of nonsense as well. And this is really, it's kind of like how Keanu Reeves is this icon, but like a lot of the stuff he does is kind of fluff. Like obviously Jude Law has more range as an actor, I think we can all agree, but you know, there's a lot of kind of gaps in his resume that you can just be like, it's fine. He needed some cash. And here, this is like, he has really come into this role as like a really iconic, amazing comeback. And it plays into precisely the same image that he had like 20 years ago, which is really amusing because he is, he is like a fully like middle-aged man. He is wearing a toupee in this, in this show. But the whole thing is that he is fully aware of his sex appeal and so is the character. So you've got him playing a more self-aware parody of when he was playing these like evil twink roles when he was like 25. And they have him in these sort of like white tracksuits and like working out. And they also have him in these formal meetings, like Morgan mentioned, where he'll like the Pope will have a meeting with a bunch of prime ministers and he'll be like, Yes, I know I'm gorgeous, but stop <laughs> looking at me and listen to my words. And there's this whole kind of thing where he's very conscious of his own image and part of his conservatism is he doesn't think anyone should be idolizing him for his looks. So he doesn't, he refuses to show any photos of himself when he's elected Pope, even though that would obviously be like amazing PR for the Vatican. And he's really into the idea of creating more mystery around the church, which is like his main policy when he first is elected, is that he wants to close off the church. He wants to stop it being modern and open. He wants everyone to be viewing the concept of God and religion through a peephole which is like the kind of the classic old school catholicism where it's like well you shouldn't be questioning or debating any of the contents of the bible in fact it's better if you only ever hear it in latin from a professional and don't even analyze a word and that is very much where he's coming from while also being colossally vain well he's forcing catholics worldwide to have the experience that he had with his parents Right, which is just to have this unknowable authority yeah. that they can't access. And also he's terrified of having to be the Pope. So <laughs> so he doesn't want to have to give a public address and actually assume the role, except in private, where he can bully people. Which he does very effectively. <laughs> Delightfully. <laughs> yeah. But like even the address to the Cardinals, which is, I guess, something that the Pope is, you know, the, the one of the first big things the Pope has to do. He puts it off forever and he like doesn't know what he's supposed to say, which he doesn't want to admit to anyone. Yeah. But he's just like, uh. I mean, it's one of those great kind of combinations of someone where their appeal is that you're watching someone who's very competent and clever be horrible and be mean to other people. But also it's like their victims aren't really victim-y because they're also being horrible to horrible people, which is a very common theme in like prestige drama and schlocky drama alike. But also he's, the whole point of it is that he's actually not that competent. Like he's basically on the seat of his pants for a lot of it and he's constantly having breakdowns behind the scenes. And I think it, part of its success is like on the surface, obviously you can market it, like I said, as being like a very typical sort of like adult rated HBO miniseries type drama. Um, it's very saleable in that regard. And also the fact that it is a morally ambiguous, funny, but very intense, stylish prestige drama about white men vying for power that is like basically the top tier of very obvious choices to be a success in America but at the same time it could only work as an Italian like basically this is like 
Italian art cinema. Like, it does not behave like any other TV show you're going to see on this type of network. And it's because you would literally just never see a show about religion come out of America like this. It is so Italian in every regard. It's absolutely informed by Italian Catholicism, like, down to the core. But you just don't... It's like when you watch American media, everything is so Christian. But for the most part, it's, like, very neutral, like, baked-in cultural Christianity where not it's not really discussed very much and you definitely obviously you do get pop culture especially like tv dramas where you'll have a more like in-depth examination of characters who are christian or specifically catholic but there's such a concern about making political judgments or like alienating audiences whereas in this case in this show which was also extraordinarily popular in italy of course it's like it is very critical it's so embedded, like like Morgan said, because the creator Paolo Sorrentino kind of grew up in this environment, you can have this reverence for the church. And like especially like the aesthetic of the show is so kind of celebratory of the Vatican without it turning into one of these things where you're just like, wow, look at the beautiful circumstances of these like evil rich people, which is like a lot of shows. Everything about the aesthetic of the young pope and I say the young Pope specifically because it kind of changes in the second season, which we'll talk about, yeah. is targeted to convey a sense of the sublime to There's you. There's a definite like luminosity to everything. Yeah. It, most of it, not all of it, certainly, but most of it takes place during the day. And there'll be these, it's like very like white and bright blue, like the sky and like green of the gardens are the sort of big colors of the show. And he just has these moments where characters are interacting or where just something will happen. There's a whole thing with a kangaroo, which we will not explain, (laughs) but where just someone has a sublime experience, which even if you are not a religious person, which I am not, like we are all, we all want to have that feeling, right? There's a moment at the end of the season where Jude Law sees these, little girls asleep on a bench in one of the Vatican museums and like walks around them and is like having deep emotions that is one of the most beautiful things I have seen in like a filmed media it's so like profound and just those little moments of something which are the crescendo of the character's feelings happen so much (laughs) in this show it works because the direction is so incredible and because the writing is so good that the characters are sort of constantly getting to that point and because the music is so fucking good the music is unbelievable so the, the the young pope is like kind of infamous for its soundtrack like there is if you go on like spotify there is this colossal playlist that's something like six hours long of all the music they use on it because like obviously there is you know incidental music that is composed for the show but there's also a really massive amount of pop music which is used and it's a very diverse range of music like clearly paolo sorrentino and like his music person have very varied tastes so like they have you know, random Italian pop music, which you've not heard of. And then like very kind of old school, like classical composers and religious music. And they also have a bunch of music in season one by Andrew Bird. Like I now completely associate Andrew Bird with the young Pope where there's these kind of like whistling and like folk violins and stuff that's going on in the background there. And it's just such a 
a distinctive sound. Do you not find that there's like certain pieces of music that you now associate with oh, the Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Logan's Loop is yeah. the big one. And they don't use him in the second season. No, I was really interested. I was like, oh, okay, this is Jude Law's music. <laughs> right. It feels like such an absence yeah. when they stop using that. You're like, oh my God. But yeah, the music is, I mean, it's used perfectly and I don't think gratuitously at all, but I think a lot of the, a lot of times filmmakers are hesitant to really overuse music in that way because they feel like it's a crutch or like it's forcing you to feel stuff excessively. And Sorrentino clearly is just like, no. No. Well, it's like also the whole, the whole theme of this show is just excess. You know, it's like yes. you just want to have like a ton of everything happening at once because that is, I mean, the experience of going to the Vatican is like that. You're blasted with all of this music and all of the kind of costume folderol, you know. Before we move on, I just remembered like bef- when we were talking about kind of the show's depiction of religion. Did you ever watch Kings? No. Because that's really the only other show I can think of that kind of overlaps with that idea. Um, This is kind of a cult favourite. It aired in 2009 on NBC and it was kind of just on the cusp of that peak TV period. It was one of these shows that I think it got screwed by like poor marketing or something, but it was by Michael Green who went on to make American Gods with Brian Fuller. And in my opinion, this show is actually much better than American Gods. It's a biblical but present day show. So it's based on the Bible story of King David. And it's kind of a present day political drama set in an American looking kingdom. So it's like a monarchy. And kind of the concept is that one of the main characters is directly anointed by the divine. So you have this situation where it's a contemporary like religious political setting where people are behaving as they would in that kind of scenario like modern day armies and empires and so forth but god is real and that is it's a rare concept to see that because when i think of other shows that are kind of mainstream and like really go deep on like christ you know i think of something like daredevil where they would definitely never touch in a million years the idea of like, here's God, (laughs) you know? They just have a bunch of sort of quite cliched Catholic guilt. Well, this show, as you said, is pretty smart about... Lenny clearly has some connection to something. He does some stuff occasionally where, you know, he's, he's invoking some power. But it's not a lot. There's just enough that it's uncanny in some way. And other people who sort of are aware of this are like, uh, like, what the fuck? And it makes him feel weird because that stuff's not supposed to happen. There's not a big to-do made of it, really. Yeah, and it's also kind of the show makes the point that it's kind of immaterial to his cult of personality. Yes. Because, of course, this character evokes really strong feelings in the people around him. Like, the people he's immediately interacting with are terrified of him. But obviously, you get so many secondary views of people who are just, like, normal members of the Catholic Church. Because there's always, in real life, just this constant crowd of pilgrims just, like, hanging out in the Vatican. And you get that feedback in both seasons of the show. And then by season two, you can really tell that, like, people are just obsessed with Lenny Bellardo. And it's like, of course they would be. Of course they would be. And it doesn't matter whether or not he has mystical powers. Well, that does become a big issue in the second season. But what I think makes the character, really makes the character work, is that he veers back and forth between treating people like shit and being incredibly psychologically perceptive about 
people in a non-evil way, especially people who actually have less power than him in like a meaningful way. So like the Cardinals have less power than he does because he's the Pope, but that's like, whatever. They're, they're still political actors. Whereas like the woman who's the wife of this Swiss guard is quite miserable because her marriage is kind of a mess and she really wants to get pregnant and she's infertile. And he is incredibly kind to her. And also there's this whole sort of fiasco that we won't get into, but the Cardinals are trying to blackmail her to sleep with him so that they can oust him. And he's just like, no, I'm not going to do this. Which is when you realize like, oh, the Pope will not be fucking in this show. There will be no sex in the young Pope, which is great. Or like the priest he really befriends is this man, Gutierrez, who basically has never left the Vatican and is a very, very nice person. Who yeah, has he's like basically issues. the nicest person in the Absolutely. show. He is kind of the, the heart you know, he's the one yes. where it's like, I wish that, you know, you you, so you feel bad for him because he is in the Catholic Church. You're like, this guy is, his life has been trapped because he is a priest. But at the same time, he's the priest that you would want to be your priest. Whereas yes. everyone else, you're like, this person just shouldn't be in a position of authority. <laughs> right. But he loves Lenny and yeah. Lenny genuinely like likes him and yeah. is, like gets what's going on with him. And so these moments he has of connection and actual insight are like he'll sort of talk about theology or just psychology in a way where you're like wow that was that was pretty deep and it then when he's trying to think about himself he has no insight at all because he's so messed up but most people don't actually have much self-awareness even if you are very aware of other people like that's just how people work but he's on this extreme grand scale because he's this outsized figure and everyone is aware of him yeah (laughs) Right. And then the whole sort of journey of that first season of the show is him coming to some sense of awareness of himself and acceptance of his situation in a way that is really profound. And I mean, I certainly feel by that point, like, I love that character. Like, I was just like, you're a mess, but like, you make (laughs) me feel so many things. But it's also the pure charisma of Jude Law. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, Jude Law is so fucking good. And the sort of inner child that is his whole personality is kind of irresistible because you're just like, oh, you're so fucked up. <laughs> like, you're just a mess. That And watching him be mean is fun. So again, I it's not like the show lets him off the hook, but I do think you're supposed to be watching it and by the end be with him, which leads us into season two. Yes. The new Pope. Yes. Like four, four years after the young Pope. So we're recording this like after episode five um, we've both seen the full season, but we won't spoil stuff and we'll keep general spoilers relatively low. Okay, yeah, we're going to have to spoil the end of the fucking first season of The Young Pope, but honestly, it's fine. whatever. I think, I think honestly as well, you can just watch it. You know that there's going to be a new Pope, so something's got to happen to right, Lenny. Yeah. So yeah, he has like a heart attack at the end of season one, but the concept of the new Pope is that he is now in a coma, a classic soap opera kind of scenario. And so the church must select a new pope and they kind of go through a fake out in the first episode where they choose the guy who was the confessor to Lenny Bellardo in season one so the guy who was like informing on everyone and he was a relatively minor character and is sort of uh, quite a weak figure and 
his purpose here is that Cardinal Vallello, uh, the Secretary of State, manipulated a situation where he can have like this quite malleable person in charge, which rapidly turns into chaos because as soon as this guy's elected, he's just like, yes, I'm like the new Christ kind of situation. And he's like massively wants to reform everything way too much. So he dies under suspicious circumstances and is replaced by John Malkovich, who is the actual new Pope. And he's he's a very cleverly selected successor. Um, I think it's probably clear from both Morgan and my kind of the way we've been talking about this is that we're maybe not as in favour of this season as season one. But that was pretty much inevitable because season one is such a kind of stroke of lightning situation. You know, you have to change from season one. If it was the same as season one, it wouldn't be as good because you'd be rehashing it. But if it's too different, you're like, well you know, season one was already perfect. And here we have this figure who is uh, the opposite of Lenny Bellardo in many ways. Lenny Bellardo grew up poor and was an orphan and is American. And John Malkovich's character, John Brannox, is very high up in the aristocracy in England. He has this astounding accent. John Malkovich's voice in this show is Oh, it's so, it's just, it's incomparable. It's delicious. The accent is like so far beyond what you normally hear for like tough accents on television. It's amazing. Um, And he is very shy, but also kind of confident. It's a very kind of complex performance and writing. And also because he's someone they're trying to select as the next Pope, the characters discuss him in a very explicit way, which makes him like easier to introduce. But he's kind of lounging around in his stately home in England and doesn't really want to be in charge but ends up in a position where he is in charge because he gets voted in and is kind of depressive and very beautiful in a different way because obviously like this is like a guy in his 60s and he's not particularly conventionally handsome but he's wearing these absolutely gorgeous outfits like these you know tailored suits and lots of dual tones and he's also wearing eyeliner which like when I was watching the early episodes I was like googling pictures of John Malkovich to be like is he just one of these people who has like really dark eyelashes um he is not (laughs) he is absolutely wearing kind of mascara and eyeliner during the periods of this show when he is not the pope because he used to be a punk. Yeah, but it's it's just such a fascinating styling choice because it's not something you ever see like you never see eyeliner on an older man and there's this amazing kind of sexual ambiguity to him and I I just really enjoy John Malkovich as a performer like he he does he works so much that there is such a lot to choose from like I've seen maybe like five percent of his filmography but the most recent actually good John Malkovich thing I saw was Dangerous Liaisons which is a really fun one to back this up with because that is like a sexy role but like a menacing sexy role and here he's kind of channeling his sexiness in a really interesting way while also not being menacing but you can kind of sense his power but it's a power of being born into privilege that he's not very comfortable with and he's also like really fragile and they have all these conversations about him being made of porcelain which is (laughs) fascinating and it's like oh there's a lot of like interesting sort of gender presentation stuff going on there as well. He's living with his parents because they're sort of old and sick. And he had a twin who died when they were 25-ish, I think. And the twin was the one who was supposed to sort of go on to be the great man. Yeah. And was go- the parents had this vision that he was going to be a pope one day. So, of course, the fact that this guy becomes the pope is this is sort of absurd irony. They The parents basically just stopped speaking to him once his brother died because 
this is a melodrama, so that's a reasonable thing that might happen. But they just sort of reject him, and he's very crushed by that in a similar way to Lenny, except that the parents are there and actively rejecting him, as opposed to these mystical figures who left him and can be sort of fictionalized. And he has this book that he published called The Middle Way, which is a sort of vision for reforming the church, which has some relatively bold suggestions, but isn't a total teardown. And he'd been sort of seen as this sort of intellectual progressive figure and then gets voted in. Yeah. And the season has a lot more sex than the first one, which is easy because there's no sex in the first one. But it becomes very clear immediately that that's like they're doing that this time. Yeah. And aesthetically is very dark. Yeah. And the whole and the music is very just like, (laughs) well, like the the intro sequence, it's because they've got the groundwork now of like season one not being what you'd expect for like a sexy young pope show. Season two has this credit sequence, which is just a bunch of like nuns, except it's not nuns. It's like young, beautiful, 20 something like dancers kind of writhing around this neon crucifix while this disco track plays in the background. And they've, they've introduced like a bunch of nuns as kind of like one of the subplots this season. So you have this, you know, this group of young nuns who work in the Vatican and sort of go on strike. Yeah. I I liked the nun subplot. I like the nun subplot too. Yeah. Branix, the Malkovich character, has this, like, he keeps seeing like these hor- sort of horrible bugs, and they signify God to him, which is such the opposite of everything that's happening in the first season, right? Where you have these sort of beautiful, sublime images. And to me, it felt like the whole question of the season was like, what happens after Christ dies, right? Because clearly, the Lenny is the Christ figure. And even though he's so flawed and so much of the first season is spent on him being like an asshole and a mess he has this quality where you're drawn to him and he does have this sense of insight and like people are very affected by him like even Boyello, the secretary of state who at first is trying to oust him he keeps having these interactions with him where he's like i just like he's so affected by him and he's sort of like damn it like i don't know what's going on and then Branix comes in and he is, I like that performance a lot too. It's really interesting, but he just doesn't have it. Like he does not have any of that at all. Well, you have so many scenes where Lenny Bellardo is yelling at God. Yes. Both of the characters have a very innate sense of the theatrical, which is obviously very appropriate for the scenario. But with Lenny, you have him like railing against God, like kneeling on the ground and like waving his arms in the air and like being like, why have you forsaken me kind of situation. And John Brannock's like doesn't pray. He's very self-contained. And the whole point of it is like he's very open about the fact that he's just like very melancholy and obsessed with his own past and very internal. Whereas all of Lenny's like internal issues are covered up by the fact that he's got this like massive personality. Yes, I think that's all true. But I also think there is something about him. Yeah that is genuinely, like, special and compelling. For sure. And God is present in season one, and God is absent in season two. Yes. And I think what happens over the course of the season is that you kind of realize that Branix is just this kind of empty vessel yeah. who's just muddling along. And that there's sort of no there there. And that everyone is just trying to figure out, like, what the fuck do we do? And there's a lot more sort of sordid 
blackmail stuff. I mean, all that stuff is sort of happening in the first season, but in this, they really get into the grossness of that. And I found it sort of intellectually interesting that he was making these choices, but I didn't find it hugely effective. I mean, I think the concept of season two being more like digging into the sordidness of the church and like all of these sex scandals definitely seems like the right choice because otherwise you kind of risk getting into one of these situations where, I mean, I haven't watched Billions, but you've kind of talked about how Billions kind of starts off being more critical and then ends up just being like, let's lean into the idea of doing a fun show about billionaires and you don't want to have to do that here. But like in season two, without going into like too many spoilers, they kind of fucked up one of the subplots because the character who in season one, as we mentioned, is the wife of uh, Vatican Guard in season two, they have this subplot for her where she's kind of lost her way and it's this kind of medieval morality play where she goes into sex work and it's just this like it's just like a badly it's just like a bad. badly it's executed just like bad. there's no kind of defense of it like both of us when we watched it we're like i can see where he's going with this but it's just not good because the concept is that she she like ends up like working for this very rich woman who her son is disabled it's portrayed in like quite a kind of medieval way where it's like he is locked up in a tower effectively and this woman is brought in to sleep with him and she's given like 15,000 euros a night or something and she's not very willing and she's not like really a professional and I guess the appeal is that she's kind of really pure or whatever but as soon as this started happening I was like this is like a normal job for a sex worker. There are like professionals who specialize in this and the way that the kind of the subplot concludes is poorly handled. And it's just like, it doesn't work on like several levels. It's kind of sexist. This show does actually include like quite a lot of, if not like main characters who are disabled, then kind of like subplots that include disabled characters. I was kind of Googling before we did this podcast, trying to see if there'd been like some coverage by disabled critics. I think maybe there might be like a podcast coming out somewhere. Doesn't seem to be any articles yet that I could find. I feel like there might be more when the show concludes because we're only like two thirds of the way through the season. But it's like, there's definitely like kind of some problematic treatments, but it's also very much one of those things that overlaps a lot with David Lynch's work, who is someone that we were both kind of discussing in conjunction with season two, where it's like, these are two filmmakers who are, very into including disabled characters and like sometimes it seems kind of exploitative other times you're like yeah this is like an interesting choice particularly in the context of the church because you have so many people who turn to the church to deal with like chronic pain and chronic illnesses and that sort of thing and that is like a very real part of the situation they're handling yeah i think part of my issue with the season with regards to the tone separate from that specific plot line which i agree is the whole every time they cut to her, I was like, "Oh Jesus!" Like, <laughs> it's not I don't want to problems. <laughs> I mean, you don't ever fucking see the subplot. I know, I'm just going back, but you don't see the subplot from like his perspective. It's like, who is this person? There is no that, sense of like agency I mean, to this not guy. What he's interested he's not interested in. at all. But I was just that's like, not what he's doing. It was just, it was just felt really. It was very. It was textbook. It's, it's bad. But um, for me, again, I understood why he had shifted the tone so much, but. The idea that, you know, they have to focus on the scandals because otherwise it would be whitewashing. Like, yes, but the way they handle the sexual abuse in the first season 
there are a couple episodes that focus heavily on that near the end of the season. And I thought that was way more effective than anything that was going on in this season, which is more just like, there are financial crimes and someone's sleeping with an underage girl, but not in a, like, it's just presented as she's, she's also kind of a sex worker and it's not dealing in a serious way with the exploitation. And conversely in the first season, like one of the main characters was as a child of victim of sexual abuse and they're dealing with trying to find evidence against like the Cardinal in New York, like the main Cardinal, the diocese in New York. Um, And it's, much more in depth and like I found it very affecting whereas this was more just sorted and again I kind of got what he was attempting to do but I didn't think it really worked particularly but without going into too much detail like I think we can say that Lenny does wake up from the coma at a certain (laughs) point yeah I mean he's in the fucking trailers and the posters to the show (laughs) yeah and as soon as he is back in the show I was like oh I fucking love it (laughs) And I don't think this season needed to exist. They probably shouldn't have made it. But I can't be that mad about it because the stuff with him, I was just like, oh, this is so good. And you have more of those moments where you have this sublime feeling, even stuff where he's not actually in the scene. Like there's a scene with these, this married couple where he's kind of interacting with in one of the episodes that I found, like just the image I found very affecting it's kind scene. of stuck in my head yeah and just his presence like infuses the show with this sense of beauty and joy and like the way the whole thing ends is so amazing and it was just kind of interesting to me to think about like people talk about this with big little lies a lot too and i watched some of the second season then it got so stupid that i stopped hollywood now is never stops something when it should be stopped right i mean this isn't hollywood this is you know the european film community yeah. but Instinct is to just keep going and going and going when something is successful because they want more money. Sometimes you should just stop something. And I think, again, this probably should have been stopped. But the pleasure you get when you just get something that's also kind of just fun. I was like, well, I have mixed feelings about this ultimately. So thanks for the good part, I guess. I mean, my my overall summation of all of this is that Jude Law is so good. <laughs> that's that's the bottom line. He's just so good. I don't career best, decade best, everything. Yeah. Throw good parts at this man, throw awards. I was talking to my mom, who also loves the show, about this, and she was like, Did, did he win Yemi? And I think he was I don't think he was even nominated. Like he was nominated for one, not the other. He definitely didn't win anything. And she was like, This is an outrage. <laughs> like, There's know, so I'm many sure. shows. But like, come on, yeah. miniseries, he should, yeah. I think we can agree that we highly recommend at least the first season of The Young Pope to our listeners. Uh, it's on HBO in America, HBO Go. I don't know where it's streaming elsewhere, but... Um, it's on Sky in the UK. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be around. It's, it's 10 hours and you will You will just have a good it. time. Yeah. You will experience just senses. Very sensual. (laughs) Yes. So next week, we will be discussing the new adaptation of Emma, which you have already seen and I have not. Yes. Jane Austen's Emma. Yes. I just finished reading the novel today. I have been posting about it on our Patreon and I'm going to write my last post about that shortly. 
Amazing book. One of my favorites. Uh, I think you had some mixed feelings about this movie, so that'll be interesting to talk about. I'm also going to be watching... There were two adaptations of this in 1996 or 1997. One with Gwyneth Paltrow and one with Kate Beckinsale. Like, why they did two of these in the same year, I do not understand. Well, there was one a Little Women that came out yeah. last year. They just don't consult each other. <laughs> yeah, but at least that was a TV show. These were... I mean, one, this was on TV and one was in the movie theater, but they were both movies. Like, what? It's just foolishness but uh, i'm gonna watch both of them and do another post on that and then we will have a full episode on the main podcast feed about this movie so you can find the patreon stuff on our patreon and that episode will be here next week we hope you will read and listen to all of that thank you all as ever for listening and uh gabia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find my work on the daily dot and you can find me on twitter at hello underscore taylor I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.